Okay. Last week, for those of you that weren't here, we did a, had a Dharma talk on based on the story of Skeleton Woman. And it was this really a talk about the ways that we run from life and death. We run from intensity. And how, although it's our conditioning to do that, it's also our capacity to learn to stop and to face our lives in a very direct and courageous way, that that's our capacity to learn to love unconditionally, whatever arises. So this week I'd like to explore this further and in the context of what's called the Bodhisattva ideal. Now many of you know the Bodhisattva is an awakening being. And the Bodhisattva ideal is that all our life circumstances, whatever happens, may serve to awaken our hearts and minds. That a bodhisattva moves through life with that prayer. May whatever arises serve to cultivate compassion. May it be a, may, may it be a benefit to all beings. And what this includes is not only the big ones of the circumstances that arise, aging, sickness, and death. May this awaken my heart and mind. But all the circumstances of our daily life, everything that happens, the intensely pleasurable that make us want more, and the less intense, the unpleasant, the small things. There's a wonderful teaching story in the Buddhist tradition about a poison tree. Some of you know this. And in this story, it said that when many people see a poison tree, they only see its danger. And their immediate response is to say, let's cut it down, let's get rid of it before it hurts any of us. It's the, it resembles the basic and initial response that we have to the difficulties that arise in our life when we face fear or grief or aggression or conflict or whatever. Don't want it. Push it away, you know? So the first response to the poison tree is chop it down, get rid of it, getting rid of the difficulties. The second, this is the response of people that have journeyed a bit further down the spiritual path, is to say, oh, a poison tree, well, let's put a fence around it. And that way, we don't have to take its life. We're not going to get rid of it, but it won't hurt us, and it's not going to be as much of a danger. And so out of kindness, they'll build a fence. And this is a shift from judgment to more of a place of compassion, of acceptance. Now, the third type, and these are those that have traveled yet deeper in spiritual life, We'll see a poison tree and say, oh, a poison tree, perfect, just what I need, just what I was looking for. And then they'll pick the poison fruit from the tree and use a mortal and pestle and grind it down and taste the poison and have that prayer and have that intent that what they're taking in with mindfulness, with care, can serve to awaken their heart and mind. The Tibetans describe this poison to medicine, that the difficulties of our life, that which most challenges us, is also that which most has the capacity to free us, to wake us up, if we're willing to face it. 
In this way, all experience can be medicine. One of my teachers, when I first retreat I went to, started, I think it was the first or second Dharma talk I ever, ever heard, and he said, all experience is equal. You know? <laughs> all experience is equal. It's equal to feel blissful and feel doubtful and feel restless and feel angry. And it's all equal. It's not the experience that matters. It's the quality of heart and mind we bring in relationship to it. Any experience can be medicine. If we're willing to be present, any experience can wake us up. The third Zen master, this is one of my favorite lines in all of classical Buddhist texts, said, to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. Many of you know this because we call the retreats, uh, the ones that I've been leading, intimacy with life. I really love that line, to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things. What, an, what a beautiful way to walk through life, to not be so conditional in what we're willing to relate to wholeheartedly, to have that open-hearted quality that really connects with all aspects of life. We talked last week about how our deepest longing is the freedom to live fully, to really be in communion with our own beings and each other and our life, to really be awake. That's our deepest longing. We all want to be unconditionally loved. We all want that. And it's the most free and exhilarating place to begin to touch what it's like to love life unconditionally. We suffer when we condition our love, when our love is conditioned on having certain experiences with certain people who are behaving a certain way to make us feel good about ourselves. Do you know what I mean? It makes it so narrow when we get to feel that feeling we cherish so much. So as a result, in our daily life, because our conditions are not usually met so well, we close down, we numb out. Our heart is not so alive, not so present for what's happening. Feeling not okay about how life is stops us from feeling intimate. In a moment of judging and saying, this isn't right, this isn't good enough, or this is bad, or I am bad, or you are off and wrong. In a moment of that type of judgment, we've created distance. Judgment creates distance. We do it personally, and we do it in the biggest way, when our way of relating to life, the fact that life is changing, that there are inevitable losses, that inevitably we die, and everything we love dies, when on some level we won't look at that, we push that away, we keep our head down, and in a sense we push away our lives by not looking at what's true. So we're conditional. We're conditional on what we're willing to relate to.
A friend of mine who's a writer locally went to India last year or the year before and his purpose was to study um, some of the goddess cults and religions and ceremonies and rituals and he described a bit a story around Kali who's the Hindu goddess of birth and fertility and death and he described first of all many of you probably know her in her classic posture with four arms and the right arm is raised high in blessing and the left holds a bloody machete some of you have seen this so he asked a Kali worshiper the following question he said so how do you get the blessing and avoid the machete <laughs> that's really a question we're always asking you know <laughs> she said angrily that's not it at all the blessing is only one when you accept both sides of her including the pain the sorrow the decay death run from her horrors and you run from her blessings to deny death to act as if your little self is the center of things and must be protected from pain and preserved as long as possible this is the real death but embrace Kali as she is feel all four arms caress you at once then you have life you have freedom pretty powerful stance eh? so that's the challenge to really embrace all of how life is which means that we learn to feel okay about what doesn't feel okay <laughs> that's layman's terms <laughs> I'm translating the Buddha here <laughs> to feel okay about what does not feel okay reflect for a moment in your own life just take a second to check in and sense what currently you might consider as a difficulty that is not okay what might be going on with you and another person are you in your experience of your own behavior work that's difficult to accept and ask yourself the question what would have to be true for me to accept this what would I have to trust to be okay about this and if anybody's willing I'd be interested to hear what you come up with anyone yeah ah I'd have to trust myself beautiful thank you others for me it's that there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong this is just the way it's supposed to be thank you even though I'm not into it right now <laughs> right anyone else yeah all is well 
all is well. In, in some big way, all is well. Anyone else? Please. Trusting my own authority rather than relying on external validation would make you feel okay about it. Okay? In each of these responses, there's a theme which really is quite powerful that the only way for us to be okay with what we have a reflex to go no to, is if in some deep way we can trust the power of our heart and mind to learn and grow and wake up through it. It's basically if we trust our Buddha nature, that we're awakening beings and whatever happens is part of that. It is the path. Somebody said to me the other day, that as soon as I can work out such and such and such and such, then I can go deeper into my spiritual path. It's, we begin to start realizing there's nothing exempt, there's nothing outside of. The next message you receive is right where you are. That these circumstances of this life, exactly what's happening, all the stuff we're having with the people close into us, the difficulties we have with our own addictive behaviors, it's all part of the path. It's all what they call manure for Bodhi, manure for awakening, you know? I like that. Some of you know this, that there was a Buddhist nun in the 1500s, and her mantra and her teachings were, thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. It takes trust to have that quality of gratitude, trusting this process of our awakening. Now, trust has a circular flow to it, if you think about it, that we already have some. We intuit our Buddha nature, our awareness, our awakening. And because of that, we have some willingness to be here, to connect with our lives, to touch what's here, because it's scary otherwise. We trust that in some way this is part of it and that we're waking up. And the more we touch and connect with the present moment, the more it builds our faith. This isn't something that's a, an axiom that you have to buy. The Buddha taught that every moment that we bring mindfulness to our experience is a moment of waking up to our true nature. But he also had a term, ehipasiko, which is, don't believe me, go try it. Try it for yourself. The only truth you're ever going to discover is through your own experience. To sit, to be willing to face our own experience with an open heart and see what happens. This deepening of faith and trust is something that's very pronounced, I notice, with people that sit at some of the longer retreats, especially five days and longer. Um, what seems to happen 
is there's these inevitable waves of weather systems that come through. And whereas in daily life, when they'd come up, all the doubt or the angst or the pain or whatever, there's so many escape routes, you know? Not so at a retreat. At a retreat, you're there to sit and be with or walk and be with whatever's there. And so it's very, very hard. And yet what inevitably seems to happen is that in the process of being with these changing weather systems, there's this growing sense of the capacity to be with whatever arises. The capacity, the heart, to be with whatever life presents. And there's tremendous sense of confidence and freedom when that happens. When we can see that it really does change. If we don't push it away or grasp on, it comes, it goes, it comes again stronger, it goes. Life moves and changes. And we can step into and become that flow when we're not busy reacting to it. For most of us, we sense the possibility of spiritual unfolding, the times when we're really going to get into it and deepen our faith, only in certain circumstances, at this retreat or with this teacher or in this beautiful place. Or we, have, we have in our minds a model for when spiritual stuff happens. Do you know what I mean? We have our times. So what that means is a lot of what we consider our ordinary day, we sleep through. We don't expect the goodies of waking up. We don't expect something special to happen. A story I love is, uh, it took place at a Joseph Campbell workshop. They had a big, big poster of Shiva. You know, God Shiva, dancing. Wonderful poster, the God of life and spirit and creativity and generativity. And one uh, woman asked Joseph Campbell, what's that under Shiva? Because it turned out that Shiva was dancing, but his foot was on the top of a little man on top of his head. And Joseph Campbell said, oh yes, Shiva's dancing on the top of the head of an ordinary little man who's looking at the ground and doesn't realize what's happening. That's us asleep that at every moment, at this moment, right now, Shiva, the divine, is just dancing on our heads, that each moment is sacred. Life becomes a quite interesting adventure when we start really opening to that possibility of the life of each moment. So formal practice, meditation practice, is training to come back and connect with that truth. We train to come back again and again and touch our experience directly, mindfully, caringly. That is the nature of formal practice. It's about this moment. I talk a lot about the two wings of the bird, that in formal practice there are two qualities totally interrelated that we cultivate. One being clear seeing. What is this right now, this moment? What's happening? That we pause and we listen. What is this? And connect in a very direct way. And the other quality, that first quality is that of wisdom. We understand because we look and see clearly. The second quality, compassion. That what we see, we hold in our hearts. 
we care about, we bring compassion to. Whatever arises in sitting practice and in daily life can cultivate these qualities of understanding and compassion. Nothing's exempt. And usually the more tangly and knotty it is, the, more, the bigger and clearer and more open-hearted we're called to be, and it cultivates those qualities more deeply. So one of the typical ways we get lost, and one of the greatest grounds for spiritual waking up, is in the ways we obsess. I thought I'd speak a little to obsession tonight, since I know a lot about it. (laughs) That's a confession. (laughs) Most people I know obsess a good deal. Some people lean towards obsessing about what they're worried about, and it's fear-based obsession. And it goes kind of like, what's going to go wrong, and how am I going to avoid it, and how can I fix what's already wrong, and it's got that kind of flavor. It can fixate on anything, interpersonal situations, work, what order you're going to go shopping in, should you go to the car, get in the car and go to the bank first and do this and that. It can fixate on anything, and the worry is underneath it, right? Other people lean towards fixating on how to get more pleasure pleasureful fantasies, more money, more recognition, more intimate encounters, just more beauty and more... These are just different temperaments. Most of us have a mix. We just have a little bit of a leaning sometimes. Because obsession, because these kind of repetitive thoughts are so common and carry us off so much, they become a great place to have the intention to wake up. It helps to name them. Oh yeah, worry obsession, worrying about money, worrying about, you know, just to name them. As soon as we name something, it's like you have a frame around it and you can open up and wake up again back into, ah, I'm here again, you know. To name them, to drop under the stories and feel what's happening. Find out what it's like, the aliveness of your body, what's going on with mindfulness under the obsession, under the story. Here's how it sometimes goes. You'll be obsessing and you'll go, oh, thinking, thinking. And then the next thing will happen is this pang of of kind of shame or judgment because, oh, I've been off in that one again. Especially if you're on retreat and you're not supposed to be off, you know. There can be this pang of, "I've, I've just been, you know, way out there. Or else it can be, thinking, thinking, and you don't get the pang, so you drop underneath. And what's there? Under the worry obsessions? Usually fear. So it's fear, fear. And in a kind and present way, just making room for how your body is. (coughs) Typically what happens with fear is it sends us off back into more thinking obsession. Why? We'd rather be off thinking than sitting down in a direct way and touching the fear. So we leave. This is our conditioning. The freedom that's possible, breaking this conditioning comes when we just have the perseverance to again and again say, okay, thinking, thinking again, and come down into our bodies. Or it's an obsession about pleasure, wanting more of something, and we come down and feel the craving in our body. And perhaps underneath that, the loneliness. 
the sadness about loss. So this is investigating the poison fruit. This is seeing clearly what it is and feeling it in our bodies and opening to it. Each time we do is a moment of freedom. What we begin to discover is the story that our obsession kept us small in is just that. That there's an ocean of experience, a boundless being that we can reopen to, a boundless awareness, that we have some choice. We have that freedom when we can recognize it's happening and open up. When we can do that, we can sense that there's just a lot of changing sensations going on in there. But most important is what the Buddha described as disidentification. That every time we wake up out of the story, we no longer subscribe so much to this idea of a small separate self that needs more of this and less of that. We connect more in a universal way to the awareness and nature, which really is our essence. Give you a story about one of the first retreats I went to. I arrived there in a lot of kind of excitement and angst about a potential new relationship. And I had been to one or two retreats before, and I knew that the whole guidelines there was to not get lost in thinking. So I sat down, and the first few sits I was pretty concentrated, but after that I was a lost cause. I was off in enormous amounts of fantasies about the rest of my life. And for, for at the beginning, it was really pleasurable. Like, every time the instructions would be, you know, notice your thoughts, come back to your experience, part of me would rebel because I was having so much more fun, you know? <laughs> So what I did was I made an agreement with myself, and I parceled out a certain amount of times that I gave myself permission to fantasize in, and then other times that I was going to be much more disciplined about coming back to mindfulness of the breath. And that worked out rather well for a while, until it sort of broke down and I got flooded again. Finally, I decided to experiment, because I realized I had very limited time in my life on retreat, and I really wanted to see if I could open out of the stories. So I named the story, fantasy, wanting, longing, craving. And I'd open to the feelings, but I didn't push away. I didn't judge it. I just kind of opened to the gestalt of it. And underneath found the layers of loneliness that were, that were really there and grieving and so on. And after a while, I was less and less tempted to hang out in the pleasure of the stories because I began to find a much deeper sense of well-being. There was a real joy in being real with myself, in the connection with what was really there. There's no realness in the stories. They're just images and sound bites about a potential future, but the realness was the craving and the fear and the loneliness. There's an absolute joy in getting real, even when what's real is painful. You know, the Buddha really described how pain is unavoidable, but our suffering is not. And there can be freedom from suffering when we don't buy into the stories and just keep connecting with our real experience. Now, for many, 
giving the instructions to feel fully your feelings is a great idea and very, very hard to do for most of us because when our feelings are painful, we don't want to go near them. We pull away from fear and pain and it takes a lot of patience, a lot of gentleness to touch directly in there. And yet if we don't, if we do not connect with our feelings fully, we don't discover the compassion that connects us with all beings. Feelings and opening to them is really the pathway of opening our hearts. So it's a training. It's a training to reconnect with the parts of ourselves we've pushed away, that we've disowned. If we're one step removed from our body and from our emotions, what we'll feel towards ourselves in the world is judgment because we'll be in our mind and our thoughts. Or we'll feel pity when we see suffering because we can't feel in our body our own. We're one step removed and we'll feel pity. As we do touch very directly the pain and the hurts and the wounds and the vulnerability, there's a natural compassion that arises in us. This is the bodhisattva ideal. We've let the circumstances of our experience, the natural pain, awaken our hearts. Tell you a story. This took place in Washington, D.C. This is a true story. happened several years ago. And in this story, it would take place in the justice system, a 17-year-old young man killed another young man. And in court, at the sentencing, the mother of the slain young man was sitting there, and she was weeping and hurting and watching the proceedings. And, and the, the man that had committed murder was sentenced to something like eight years. It was in, in, it, in some way he was responsible, but partly. It was a bit confused. So as he left the courtroom, she stood up, and she said, I'm going to kill you, and he left. He went to jail, and from that point on, she became his most regular visitor. She went week after week. She'd bring him food. She'd bring him books. She'd just bring him mail, letters, anything. She just was his visitor. And the years passed. He got out a little earlier on good behavior. And she came to him right before he got out and said, well, what are you going to do for work? I don't know. I have no connections, nothing. She said, I'll find you a job. Then the next week, where are you going to live? Come live with me. And that's how it went. She took him in. She adopted him. It said in one African country, that if someone kills someone, they're responsible to be part of that other person's family. I'd never heard that before. Somehow or other, this woman was connected enough with her heart and her being that she was able to be with this young man and see his potential. And she said to him, when I said I was going to kill you, I, was going, I meant I was going to kill the part of you that could ever cause that kind of harm to anyone again. And I was going to do it through my heart.
And she did. Let me read you this. This is a prayer for children. And I read it because so much of our learning to feel in our bodies is to really sense the vulnerability that's there that has a childlike quality and innocence. We pray for children who sneak popsicles before supper, who erase holes in math workbooks, who throw tantrums in the grocery store and pick at their food, who like ghost stories, who can never find their shoes. And we pray for those who stare at photographers from behind barbed wire, who can't bound down the street in a new pair of sneakers, who are born in places we wouldn't be caught dead, who never go to the circus, who live in an X-rated world. We pray for children who sleep with the dog and bury the goldfish, who bring us sticky kisses and fistfuls of dandelions, who get visits from the tooth fairy, who hug us in a hurry and forget their lunch money. And we pray for those who never get dessert, who have no safe blanket to drag behind them, who watch their parents watch them die, who can't find any bread to steal, who don't have any rooms to clean up, whose pictures aren't on anybody's dresser, whose monsters are real. We pray for children who spend all their allowance before Tuesday, who shove dirty clothes under the bed and never rinse out the tub, who don't like to be kissed in front of the carpool, who squirm in church or temple and scream in the phone, whose tears we sometimes laugh at and whose smiles can make us cry. And we pray for those whose nightmares come in the daytime, who will eat anything, who have never seen a dentist, who aren't spoiled by anybody, who go to bed hungry and cry themselves to sleep, who live and move but have no being. We pray for children who want to be carried and for those who must, for those we never give up on and for those who don't get a second chance, for those we smother and for those who will grab the hand of anybody kind enough to offer it. The bodhisattva ideal of awakening is not a passive one. Compassion and action means that we let our hearts be touched and we respond out of care. And that's quite different than responding to the world in a reactive, reflexive way, out of fear and out of grasping. It starts in the way we relate to our inner life. May all that arises in our inner life awaken us so that we awaken as we touch what's there, and then we have the capacity to respond with care. Loving kindness, forgiveness, compassion, really we start to learn in relationship with our own inner life, these Brahma-viharas, these divine abodes. We need to learn how to take care of ourselves, but not in the traditional way in a way that comes from a deep sense of compassion towards our own beings. And then it naturally extends to others. Compassion is very non-conditional. Once we've learned to feel our pain open to the woundedness, be compassionate, there's a natural 
space of compassion that includes other beings. Sensing our compassion, our care extends to beings, not to help an other. We don't go around being do-gooders to help out this poor other person. Rather, we help because there's a sense of, here we are. We're in it together. One Aboriginal Australian woman put it this way. She said, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. It's that quality of compassion. We truly are in it together. We're learning to belong. In moments of waking up, we learn to connect with our own bodies and with each other and with this beautiful earth, with all beings. We learn to sense that we all have the same universal forces of grasping, of resisting, and under that, the deep longing to love and to be loved. And when we sense that, there's a lot more freedom to relax and enjoy it all. We don't take it quite so personally when we sense we're all in it together. I love this poem. It's called Bugs in a Bowl. And it was written by Han Shan, a great old crazy Chinese poet of about a thousand years ago. And he said, we're just like bugs in a bowl all day going around. I say, that's right, up the sides and back down, round and around, over and over again. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry and moan, or look around, see your fellow bugs, say, hi, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> so part of our healing is that recognition that we belong. We really do. We belong together. We belong. And there's a sense of wholeness, of being a part of. It's, it's interesting to sense where we feel at home, to ask that question to ourselves. Which people, which places. And a sense that as we relax, it becomes more and more the world. There's a line from the Sikh scriptures, my forest retreat is in every home. One Taoist master was sitting naked in his mountain cabin meditating. A group of Confucians entered the door of his hut, having hiked up the mountain, intending to lecture him on the rules of proper conduct. When they saw the sage sitting naked before them, they were shocked and asked, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? The sage replied, this entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. What are you fellows doing in my pants? <laughs> so what's our sense of environment or home, you know? <laughs> when we feel connected, when we feel at home, there's a natural care that extends to all beings, all places, all parts. There's a Zen saying that in this life, all we do is sit and sweep the garden. You know, take care of life. And the garden is everything. <laughs> Sit and sweep the garden. It includes all of life. We're here just to attend to and be with and play with and care for all of life. 
That doesn't mean grand acts. That can be pretty prohibitive if we think taking care of the world means some very grandiose acts. It's as Mother Teresa said, we cannot do great things, only small things with great heart. You know that? And yet those small things are what compassion and action is about. It's about the resolve to really, with the people of our lives, love the ones we're with. It's about being kind to the people that we are around, those that we know well and that we don't know so well. The beauty of it is, even when we don't feel so connected, having that intention and acting on it helps to engender a sense of of friendliness and, and communion with life around us. It's a beautiful practice. To begin to take the activities of our daily life, the ordinary activities, and really bring a wholeheartedness to it. To belong to our lives doesn't mean just to the big, grandiose, or exciting parts. It means to washing the dishes and driving the car. It means to watering the plants. It means to whatever we happen to be doing, we're there with it, with our hearts. It sounds simple, and yet it's actually quite scary to commit ourselves on that level. It's a deep resolve to not have any escapes, not have any back doors, to say all experiences are equal and my intentions to bring my heart to it all. It's scary. We hold back. We hold back as we're kind of waiting for something better and afraid of settling for something less. We hold back with each other. We're afraid of each other, afraid of getting hurt, getting suffocated, getting rejected. We hold back. The last poem I'd like to read tonight by Thomas Carlyle. He writes, It is good to use best china, the most genuine goblets, the oldest lace tablecloth. There's a risk, of course, any time we use anything or anyone shares an intimate moment or a fragile cup of revelation, but not to touch not to handle the artifacts of being human is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe, where nothing is enjoyed or broken, or spilled or spoken, or stained or mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost or found. So this is the bodhisattva ideal, that all circumstances may awaken my heart and mind, that I may be of benefit to all beings. Life really becomes an adventure, becomes quite vivid and alive when we give ourselves to that, when we learn to be very unconditionally friendly, present there with our life. Poison really becomes medicine, and we discover a freedom we've never known before. So I'll end with that, and if we can, just to sit for a few moments together. Please come sitting up.